0: Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my Able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Nikolai Hack. Nikolai is the co-founder and CEO of wealth management platform Exo Investing, which he started with school friend Leonard Assoff in 2016. Back to the tune of 16.5 million euros at seed by ETS Factory and Ariana de Rothschild, their mission is to unlock private banking for everyone. The platform allows users to build a unique portfolio and keep it optimized daily by using AI algorithms built over 30 years at ETS Factory. But, as we discover, the Exo platform is only the first step on a greater mission to build something much bigger for the fintech ecosystem. So without further ado, we bring you Nikolai Hack.
1: Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the Startup Microdose podcast. We're joined today by Nikolai Hack, the founder of Exo Investing. Nikolai, thank you for coming on.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Good to be here.
1: You are unlocking private banking for everyone, so we definitely want to get on to that. But
2: just so you can give us some background, how did it all start for you? Yeah, sure. So I, um, it starts at high school, basically, where me and my co-founder, Leonard, uh, met. And then we went different paths. So we actually studied in the same place again during our college days, but afterwards, um, um, our, our path kind of diverge, but um, we looked at the and this was around 2015-14. We looked at the robo investing space and the robot advice space here in the UK or well globally, really. Thought it was quite interesting, but I also thought it was quite lacking. We found that there were the, the propositions were quite quite simple. Um, it was mostly a digital distribution for pretty much the same way of doing things. And at that time, I was working in in management consulting. My friend Leonard, my co-founder, our CEO, because I'm the CEO of Hexo and he's the CEO. He was working in uh, at a company called ETS um, Asset Management, and. What they've been doing uh, is purely quantitative, yeah, robo, real robo investment management or asset management for institutional clients, private banks, high net worth individuals. And so we looked at the robo-advice space and thought, hey, this investment engine that they have available, which is only available now to institutions um, and to private banking clients, so to very wealthy people, we could bring this to to the retail space, to a much broader audience, the mass affluent and, 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 and well, everybody actually, in effect. And that's where the idea started for Exo to bring uh, more refined, more sophisticated private banking-grade investor management to the masses, to everybody, really. And that was the the origin point. And then. Um, I think we started out a bit l- a bit different from, from, from the normal startup way. We had the idea and the concept first, and then, but we realized, hey, for this we need a lot of money in this space mm. because of the regulatory frameworks, because of the legal hoops, because of the technology that you need to build. It's it's not something two guys in a garage in a garage could, could start. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went out to look for money first, with not much more than the concept actually. And then when we had some funding secured, we started building Exo, and that's what we've been doing now for the last yeah two and a half years or so. Yeah.
1: In terms of getting the initial amount of funding, how much were you looking for? Because it is notoriously expensive to get a, a financial services company off the
2: off the ground. Absolutely, yeah. So the the minimum we thought you needed in this space is a million probably, is around about a million pounds or so mm-hmm. to, like I said, you need to integrate with a lot of third parties. You need to um, get the regulatory framework in place, work with a regulator for quite a while. Just keeping the, the funding there costs money, obviously, um, while you're waiting to be authorized and to actually get to the market. And of course, you need to build the tech. So this is kind of what we looked at as as a initial figure and we also wanted um yeah long-term long-term partners in this and we found them in the the owners of the the company where, where Leonard worked uh, of the the owners of ets they are an investing party in this for mm-hmm. them it's a very strategic a very long-term investment into um seeing yeah, the technology that ets has built this very very refined and and ai-powered investment engine in a in a new proposition in a different market segment
0: was the technology part of the investment
2: yeah so that's the that's uh, also part of the the setup that's a bit different probably from our normal startup. so we because we are basically a spin out from from ets mm-hmm. um while um it started as an internal project at ets we realized really soon okay this needs to be just proper it needs to be its own company and then we said okay no, let's set up a separate entity while ets is still involved one as a strategic technology partner but also as the, the the owners in the company that's a uh, There's a very close link between the two entities, but it's a, of course, we we realized Exo needs to be completely separate, and um, this is how we set it up.
1: Was it spun out to give it the ability to appeal to a retail consumer, e.g., brand positioning? Because obviously, there's huge tech budgets internally at banks where they spend hundreds of thousands on projects. So, what was their reason for not trying to pull that in-house and keep you uh, all involved internally?
2: Yeah, I think this the, the intention is the same as you would see it in big organizations. That you, for a project like this to work, you need to be nimble and agile, and you need to be able to react really quickly to well the feedback you get from the market and how things are working or whether they're not working. And to do that within an established organization is, is tricky. It's very very tricky for a bank uh, and, and a big corporation, it's a big enterprise level organization, because you can't pivot 5,000 people. You can't you can't pivot 50,000 people. You can't even pivot 5,000 people. But with the company, um, when you enter a new market and a new proposition, you have to probably pivot at some point. You know, readjust the proposition. Um, readjust the, the, the audience you're working for, readjust uh, the, the, the precise offering. To do all of this and to be able to do all of this, we realized it needs to be its its own entity and it cannot uh, happen within an, an established structure. And this is why we, we yeah. clearly then said, okay, we have the concept, we have the idea. Let's set it up as its own entity and find a team and find a you know, go-to-market strategy, um, build the, the marketing channels, build the product, of course, build the tech, uh, build the operations, etc. But ev-
0: do all of that separately. And how far are you into the product now?
2: Yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting point actually for us, a point in time right now. So we've been, with Exo Investing, we've been live for a year now in the market with the retail proposition, which is basically fully automated wealth management, um, end-to-end automated wealth management. Um, what it means is, and why is it important? Why is the end-to-end automation important there? To be able to do individual portfolio management, so that means for a retail client to build them an individual portfolio with individual daily risk management, and also with the ability for them to have a say in how the assets are managed. To be able to do that at scale for for hundreds of thousands or millions of customers, you need to do it fully automated because you cannot have an investment committee or individual portfolio managers or a lot of back office or middle office staff to do all the operational tasks. So the technology that allows us to do that, to build that, was that was the major work, of course, that we did. Mm. While we build technology to um, fully automate the process of what wealth management is and how it functions, we realize there's a lot more we can do with this, actually. And this is why I'm saying this is an interesting point for us. Because while uh, the retail proposition, investing is live, in the background, and this is for us is the longer-term vision of what this business should be and can be, um, is the, the technology that is, as we call it, is finance as a service or wealth management as a service, which um, is now we have this technology and now we want to open it up. And Investing is a very powerful showcase of, okay, this is how you could use this technology, but going forward, we want to have an ecosystem where we allow other, other players to build propositions on top of this technology so they that they can themselves develop propositions of investment management, of saving, of uh, whatever you can think of in the asset management space, without them necessarily having to build any of what we've built uh, anyway. So while uh, so investing is now live for a year, and it's a an very important yeah, proof of concept and a very powerful mm-hmm. showcase of what the technology can do, for us, the, the bigger vision is something else, is to mm-hmm. to build out this yeah, core engine of an ecosystem that allows everybody to become an investment manager if they wanted to, any organization, be it... Uh, a startup that is working on a potentially think of a, a mortgage proposition where mm. you uh, maybe uh, disintermediating that space and you're not currently offering um, an investment management part. Or you're a savings product and don't have an investment engine behind that. What we want to be is the party which you can plug into and you bold on your proposition to our technology stack. And then you also are offering an investment management proposition as part of your, your offering. And so there's these two streams. There's the retail product that we have, Exo Investing. We might have more retail products going forward. But yeah, the technology business, the B2B business um, in the background <coughs> is, the, is the important thing. So bit. would that be sort of like a John
1: Lewis can offer you your, your pension? Allocation or something in in the future, and you envisage brands ha- using their trust to build deeper ties to the actual economic health of their of their customers and
2: their their audience. Yeah, that's the intention, really. So, to, I mean, our vision is to allow everybody to be an investment manager or to and build uh, next generation financial propositions. Because what does it take? What what did it take us to build Exo Investing? You need to want to become regulated. You need to integrate with the custodians, with banks. You need to be able to control the client money flows. You need to be able to uh, work in the uh, in the regulatory frameworks you need to obviously also find a go-to-market strategy and build the technology behind all of that and build uh, the interfaces for the customer so all of these bits make up a proposition like x investing so for somebody uh, be it a john lewis uh, or be it a um if three to, uh, the mobile phone company decided tomorrow that they wanted to use their customer base to also do investment management um, but they wouldn't probably want to be an inv- in regulated business they mm-hmm. wouldn't want to get regulated by the fca and they don't necessarily would have the ability to build on an investment engine like we have, at, uh, where it's fully automated um, individual portfolio management. So if they bolt on their branding, their customer experience, and the journeys they already have with their current ex- uh, existing clients, and we just operate in the background, that's what going forward this could be.
1: Well, as you say, it, um, I could see it being exceptionally relevant to phone companies that have a huge interest in keeping customers loyal for, for years. I mean, I've probably been with EE for 10 years now and they want to point a differentiation to go through that lifestyle with you nice plug
0: yeah oh, i, hate that. <laughs> I uh,
2: they're not managing my money very well <laughs> i'm just saying more phone, fun you know but like, uh, it, it, it makes probably, sense it's not not the best example there's much better examples um think of a different proposition and um, and this is why the, the, the possibilities are really sort of endless you know within mm. the space think of in investment banking um, if you work in an investment bank you're very limited to what you can your invest your money into because yeah. of the the separation um, of the tasks and you, you because you're active on the buyer side and then it limits what you can do individually as an investor think of a bank you know, wanting to launch an investment platform for their employees um, where compliance directly pre-approves um, what they're able to do think that's interesting the, that's an, the, another product you know where they necessarily don't want to be the investment manager behind that we could be that like the the, the possibilities are um many fold um of, of which the ways in which you can use the technology are many fold so
1: can we take a, a quick step back just to give people a sense of the, the competitive landscape? Because I think a lot of people may be familiar with sitting on the tube and looking at nutmegs and, and all the other sort of attractive returns that have pushed you when you're sitting down on the on the tube commuting. What are, what are they doing at the moment and, and how do you continue to see yourself differentiating? Are they
2: going to try and move into a similar spaces
1: as, as you over time as well?
2: So. In the retail space, there's there's two or one big problem for everybody has been customer acquisition. And that it's been really hard to acquire customers, whether you're a Nutmeg or um, a Wealthify, a Wealthsimple, it doesn't matter, you're all the big robo-names out there. Getting people to sign up for a fully digital investment proposition is a lot harder than everybody assumed it was, I think. Especially what's interesting there is the difference to banking, where the build it and they'll come actually happened, whereas the the investment proposition didn't happen so much. As I said before, so for us, the the main point that, or uh, you could say a point of criticism that we have is, a lot of these propositions are just digital distribution channels for quite the the same way of doing things. In the background, you still have investor managers, you have human Um, portfolio managers, you have investment committees of people making decisions. And that limits what you can do and at which scale you can do it. So to get to the next level where you have actual robo advice, where it's fully automated, you need to automate these steps. You need to have um, also the investment management fully automated and the machine making the decisions. In our retail proposition is the big differentiator and where we show, okay, this is what this technology can do. We can build for an unlimited number of retail clients Individual portfolios so no model portfolios no buckets that you fall mm-hmm. into you sign up It's your portfolio and it's managed on a daily basis. So it means it's every day the algorithm runs looks at okay here's your profile here's your portfolio here's the market do these three still make sense and if they don't then actually trading happens so positions are sold and uh, positions are are bought and that's why why is this possible one because where the technology comes from in private banking and private wealth management the base expectation is that you have an individual portfolio you don't want to sign up to a uh, into a model portfolio that is managed um, for you like it is for everybody else but also it's not necessarily rocket science, right? you just need to connect a lot of dots from te- to bring technology to this space where it hasn't been used before. So it means to need cloud computing, you need of course machine learning and AI to actually do the portfolio management, you need to you know, use parallel processing to get the computing power, you need to actually you know, calculate thousands, hundred thousand, millions of portfolios at the same point in time. So the differentiating points for us are these. To be able to do what a private bank or, or a private wealth manager is able to do at a much, much lower you know, price point or an equivalent price point as a robo-advisor um, would, would, would have
1: it. Because surely if you go to, through B2B acquisition channels, you're saving a lot of money versus the B2C acquisition channels, where I assume Nutmeg is spending a lot of money acquiring new users, which dampens the returns presumably that they're able to, to generate unless they separate out the venture funding from the the, the trusted nominee accounts for But they are going for b2c channels they are but I'm saying that via b2b routes as well I imagine your cost per acquisition of customers and the inherent trust of them is improved I mean we see people with mm. utility switching going through IKEA and other things like that because it, it builds trust the the step is not as 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 far because people people are careful but are precious about their money especially yeah. when you don't know where it's going I think that's the why we defer to the human touch Continually with legals, I know Seed Legals are doing a fantastic job, but often people will want to speak to somebody at Seed Legals team just to, to double check, because if your money disappears because of an algorithm, as opposed to disappearing because somebody let you down, you can't pick up the phone and, and
2: blame anybody. Especially, you raise a very good point. You know where where does the human add the most value, and I think it's very important to realise that there is there is still a segment, and there will be for, for uh, uh, quite some time, there will be a segment of clients who are not ready to move their, their money to a fully automated machine powered um, investment proposition. And that's fair enough, and, and which is why it is so important that you use the technology there where it makes sense and you leave the human uh, in charge of the tasks where they add the most value. And that's clearly, you know, in, in, in the client communication and conversation and t- for example, in the onboarding, you know, like to explain the proposition and to get you into the proposition and then Translate the output of the machine into human legible information. One ap- application of, of the uh, technology behind Exo Investing, the core engine that we have, is uh, for advisors, for example, for uh, financial advisors. And there, the intention is not to replace all the the back office and middle office staff they have, all the administrative staff they have, but to free up the time that these people spend on administrative stuff and reporting and monitoring and you know the number crunching and the data processing to give them time to actually interact with the clients because that's where you add a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I, when I see big organizations like a bank I- implementing a chatbot, you, I, I, re- I find it odd because y- you've automated the, the, the one, ch- you know, part in the process where the human is clearly superior to the technology still, which is the the human conversations and the the, the communication. While you have probably you know, 15,000 people sending around Excel sheets uh, as attachments and emails to do reporting, number reporting. So that's where technology adds a lot of a lot more value, actually, if you automate the processing information, information administration, basically, and leave the human there where they, where they do a good job. And that's you know, like like us sitting here, you know, having a, having a podcast with a, with a computer wouldn't be as fun, I guess, right? <laughs> so, um, who knows? Might ask who knows, questions. maybe.
1: <laughs> um, oh. And how has how this, this year gone for you, though? the first year out in the live in the world? What, Teething problems have have arisen. Um, what's so surpassed your expectations?
2: Yeah. So since we we always started out with the the vision of being a technology provider and 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 being a B2B business, and we since we started out with that, there has been you know some some internal pivoting going on. While we always knew where we want to end up, let me explain what that means. So. Because of course, um, building technology—it was the main goal of, of, of our venture. But in the meantime, or while doing that, we realized, okay, we can easily also launch propositions like Exo Investing, and we may be gonna launch more products going forward. Um, we're thinking about a, f- a, f- a free product or a, a, a yeah an entry-level free product, for example, that might come later this later this year or maybe at the beginning of next year. But realizing that because we have the technology available to us, it's very easy for us to yeah, launch these propositions. It was a yeah a very important point for us to be able to create awareness for what we're actually doing. Because one, you could of course try to market a B2B business, but having a retail proposition is, is, is a much more powerful showcase and uh, a shop front window for, for the capabilities you have. So it has been an, obviously it's an investment to to do this and it, it's time com- time consuming and resource consuming to do this, but it's absolutely worthwhile because it gives us a direct line of sight with the market. So. We are in direct contact with the end clients of an investment proposition mm, and in, in the use case of our technology, which is extremely powerful. It gives us direct feedback, what's working, what isn't working. And of course, we, we have all the learnings from also the interaction that our, our clients have with the product so that we, we know what they like and what they don't like and what we need to change. And by us having that knowledge firsthand, it's much easier for us to sell the technology to someone else who then wants to build a proposition themselves because we can say, hey, like, we not only have technology, but we also know how it works and we mm. know how, how, how people tick when they use it. So that's, it's extremely powerful for us while, of course, it uh, uh, comes with
0: all the struggles of you know launching a, a retail product into the market. Uh. And who are the people using it at the moment? Do you have a sort of average profile or is there a wide diverse spectrum of people using it? so uh, clearly some yeah some some patterns have emerged
2: and there is the what we don't do is a lot of we don't do a lot of educating around investing so we um if you come to Exo, you probably have a fair understanding of what in- investment manager means, how it works, and what you want from it. Because the, the proposition is quite complex. We In Exo Investing, we have all the bells and whistles of what this tech can do. Like I said, it's individual portfolios, daily managed. You have a say in the asset allocation. You can say, I like a certain sector, or so, I like a certain region, I like a certain asset class maybe. Does that come with accountability? for
1: the user, so would the user be accountable by, or should they feel accountable for bad decisions? If, if I want to be overexposed to a, a certain portion of the market that is particularly volatile or, or is a bubble, um, does that emphasis then fall on the, the user who signed up and chosen that to, to reject your advice and still go ahead anyway, or will you warn you them back into sort of a more
2: sort of sensible structure in line with their returns? Yeah, no, th- th- it's a very good question. That's exactly how it works. Um, you have to think of our technology being like the guardrails on a road where you still get to decide how you want to drive um, to a degree. And depending on your, your risk profile, these guardrails are narrower or wider. So we, what what do we do? When we onboard you as a client, we establish a financial profile, or we establish your, your, your profile, your risk profile. Um, by a couple of data points um, that we we gather from you. We figure out who you are uh, as a person, as a financial profile. And depending on that, um, we set the guardrails. Within those guardrails, you can also choose to let the machine do all the work. You don't have to intervene in the process at all. So there's an fully AI um, mode basically where we do all the driving that's you know the analogy is to fully autonomous car um, Mm -hmm. that does all the driving for you and if you want the the more active mode you can take control because it's an individual portfolio and not a model portfolio you can have an influence and a say over the asset allocation but we still set the guardrails nothing will go well literally off the rails you know if, mm-hmm. if you so want but we give you a level of control over what happens within those boundaries and then um you can like i said yes yeah, say uh, I, there's a certain asset class certain sectors or a region i like maybe and then you can you can make have a say there and it leads to coming back to the earlier question who's onboarding uh, who are our clients there we have a above average financially literate audience in in this proposition
0: because it it, it does a bit of asking from the user yeah to the reason i asked is because I went on and I I did the thing Mm -hmm. and I mostly didn't understand the questions that were being asked and that's because I've never done anything like that I don't know anything about any of those investment markets basically yeah and so and so then I was wondering following on from that question like what the hurdles are to get more people or like a because if you're unlocking private banking for everyone presumably there is some intention to educate the market so that people like me can go and do that risk profiling and actually understand what i'm what i'm being asked
2: yes uh, absolutely there, there's a which is why what is important is what i mentioned earlier where we're also yeah thinking about launching more propositions you know as a almost a side effect of of, of yeah, the technology that we're building underneath it all and exo investing really was for us it was important to have a showcase that shows yeah all like i said all the bells and whistles of what this tech can do but you're absolutely right for for someone with a little less knowledge about the investment space and investment management space uh, you need you, you don't need the investing bit as the proposition but you need mm. the, the the journey there that is the actual product and so we're which is why I said earlier we're, we're, laun- we're thinking about yeah, launching a, a, a free entry
1: level product Would that, um, that ring fancy the amount that can be managed so let's say you say I can put in 100 quid and see how it's behaving under your platform and then
2: the managed service it become for a larger pool, or yeah. So it, even with exo investing, we set the the account minimum at um, at five thousand pounds actually. So because and that has two reasons. One, for the the algorithms to do its work properly of diversifying, allocating the assets, you need a certain a certain minimum. But two, it's also a bit philosophical. We think that if you don't have five thousand pounds, you probably you shouldn't be inve- You should not be active in the stock market right now. That's probably n- you should be saving actually um to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Which is why, what could a free or entry-level product look like? Um, we. We, we would start with you would start with smaller amounts obviously but you would also we would lead you to an amount where you then can be active in the markets. So it would probably be a mixture of a saving and investing product but uh, I don't want to well, say too much about it also because sure. it's, it's, it's something that's in development but the important point is yes for for users in that segment of the market uh, what matters is different like I said it's not so much the, the sophistication of the investment engine or the proposition but it's the journey there of how you get to that point where you can actually be active in the market where you actually are comfortable and, and, and confident enough to to put your money out there. And so it has to be a, a very, very different product from what you what you would currently see at Exo Investing.
1: Because mm. I think what can happen, which Ollie highlights quite nicely, is that you can see the percentage return and then work your logic backwards from that. And people can just go, is 4%, it's 4%, it's 4% and one person promises it, it goes into a black box over there, somebody else does it a completely different way, but ultimately all I'm concerning myself with is that, am I compounding 4% per year, and is Mm -hmm. it safe? So in terms of why somebody would want to be active versus going, I want to wash my hands of it and do something mediocre, but off it goes, and if I get 5% then you know, I'm fine. What's the sell to them to convince them to sort of participate in this slightly more
2: um, intricate approach? So I think what's important is that, like, w- what do you want to achieve, right? What's the what's the goal of all this? Why, why are you putting your money to, into well, a purpose in any way, right?
1: Ultimately, within our education system, financial literacy should come hand in hand. We should be growing up with some competency and, and a full understanding. Like Ollie, I've, I've got plenty of gaps in my knowledge. So that's what I would hope for, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily what is happening.
2: Yes, w- which is why I think they, they, there's a huge opportunity still, right, to, to, to create that journey, to, to guide you to mm-hmm. that, to that goal. What is your goal? Because in the end, whether you're saving, and th- which is why I don't like this this differentiation between those three areas. There's saving, there's investing, and then there's pensions. And a lot of people look at those as different things, but it's but it's actually not because the goal of those three is the same. You want to prepare for some event in the future where you need m- more funds than you have currently, and that could either be retirement or it could be a a, a drawdown in form of a, of a property purchase or a m- other major acquisition. But that's the sole purpose of all of these three things which is why it doesn't matter so much and there comes the the financial literacy or the education but it doesn't matter so much to be aware of the intricate details of these products but to have an understanding of why that is important to do no matter what no matter how you do it and because that the decision of how you get there ideally is left to someone who understands it better than you do but the awareness that you that you know it is important to be active and to prepare for these events that's that's the part that's probably lacking at the moment and where I think yeah, education could play a role, but then also obviously the, the private sector can play a role, right? Well, in the end, uh, have us having you uh, as a customer is, is beneficial or should be beneficial for both of us. So we should make an effort to get you to, to be interested in what we do.
1: And do you think some of the influence for this was was cultural for you? So for instance, my um, outside understanding of Germany is that it's not a, it's not a country that particularly lends itself to the credit system it doesn't have a huge appetite for sort of drawing down lots of credit and stuff like that so do you think that you spotted an opportunity for this financial literacy because you've, you've grown up in an environment where
2: maybe you had more more education i think i mean the, the question of like why are what the answer to the question like why are we here in the uk is kind of related to that um the uk market is is especially in certain ways because one there's a a strong, well, digital readiness to handle money, mm-hmm. um, which is more advanced than it is in other European continental countries, especially Germany, you mentioned that. But there's also a more active role to uh, to be active in the stock market, actually, compared to where, where I come from in Germany. Being or accumulating money means saving, having a savings account in most cases, the stock market is not something that even not even the average person but l- far less than the average person would would even consider going to so there's there's the cultural dimension and then there's also of course i mean the this, this ecosystem that you have here in london plays a role where you have tech and finance come together in one place and then there's just the the rapidness of how cr- propositions are created i think is very different to a lot of things that are would be possible in germany or in or in, in france maybe or also in the nordics where they are more advanced in, in certain areas like payments for example mm-hmm. But the, yeah, the, the cultural aspect plays a role, but I also think it's the, the environmental factors that yeah, are a bit different between the countries and what, why certain, certain things work and why certain uh, others don't work. Yeah.
0: I really want to pin down for a moment exactly what makes your retail product different from, from the others. So am I right in saying that on something like Nutmeg, when I do the risk profile initial questionnaire, they give me a score and they then recommend a portfolio based on that score but that portfolio that they recommend is the same for everyone who's, who gets given that score and the risk profile. Whereas on your platform, you do a similar risk profiling, but then the, the portfolio that ultimately gets recommended to me, whether I choose to create it or not, manually create it or not, is totally unique to me. And, and indeed changes every day based on the, through the AI interacting with whatever fluctuations going on in the various mar- markets and asset classes.
2: That describes it pretty well. Yes. Okay. Um, so the I wanted to make sure <laughs> I got it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was, very was good. pretty good. No, absolutely. Uh, w- with the exception that it, it, while the checks happen daily, the rebalancing doesn't happen daily. Okay. Um, it, does, it doesn't make sense always to rebalance or change the portfolio. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I read a, a book that was a distillation of, of
1: economic concepts. And it was, I think it was backing mutual funds. And the idea being that they're not constantly moving money around. And we, as investors, often underemphasize the cost mm-hmm. of transacting a lot. So if you are rebalancing the portfolios, um, how do you get away from the sort of brokerage fees and snipping away at somebody's, um, somebody's money?
2: So it's about having the right infrastructure in place, really, that allows you to not have a, a, a bottom line impact that is that is noticeable at all. Um, there is, you have to be fully transparent. There, even for the consumer, of course, there is the, the bid ask spread. So there's a, mar- a marginal difference in the price when you sell and buy an asset, obviously. So. Just from a transaction point of view, it's never without cost. That that's clear. But uh, we don't have yeah we don't have trading costs. We don't have exchange costs. We don't have transaction costs. N- none of that sort. Um. And why are we able to do that? Yeah, because we have the right infrastructure in place that reduces our cost to well, it's not zero obviously, but it has reduced the cost enough to be able to well, offer that to the client. And to your point of how how that is different to uh, you, you mentioned a uh, nutmeg or how that is different to some of the other robot advisors that are out there. And why does it matter? Why does individual port- management matter think of a quick example I, i've invested let's say i've invested 20k two years ago and the market has gone gone south and i've lost half of that now i'm at 10k but then i was a risk level five you know let's say that so i'm a risk level five i've lost 10k i'm now at 10k and we're let's say it's today now you today you go online you open an account you have 10k you also risk level five by all the uh, evaluations that we've made and you invest your money at the same point in time where i also have 10k so both of us are a five uh, risk level five investor with 10k at the same point in time but our portfolios must be very very different because you've not lost any money yeah. but i've already lost half of my money so our portfolios couldn't be managed in the same way mm-hmm. my risk potential is is used up by 50 percent whereas you can still take a lot more risk in the same you know uh, f- framework of what a risk level five is so which is why if you think about it that way then yeah a, 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 a portfolio approach where everybody's money is managed the same um uh, has some deficiencies you know that, that you can still improve on and that's in exo investing is
0: one way of how you you know can can work on that mm. uh, and, and presumably like given that you've talked about the grand division for exo your monetization strategy at this point isn't so important for ultimately becoming profitable but but what is it for the for the retail product,
2: what the ambition is for the retail product, or
0: as in how? Do you, how what's your uh, revenue model from from that product? Oh
2: yeah, so w- we, I mean, we take a, a um, an, an AUM fee, like you would find it as at uh, most of the other propositions. It it ranges from 0.5 to 0.75 percent for uh, depending on the the AUM that you have on the management. So after mm-hmm. 100k, it's 0.5 percent. Before okay. that, it's, it's it's 75 basis points.
0: And is that again a way of showcasing the way these? You hopefully can allow other companies to roll out similar product. Yes,
2: absolu- I'm, uh, absolutely. I absolutely. There's the. I think there's also there, there's something very interesting that could be done with pricing models in in this space. You, um, we've gotten used now to subscription based models mm. um, in a lot of other areas where that wasn't the case before. So I think there's a clearly a case for experimentation, um, to see what else you can do. The approach that we have with the asset on the management fee is, um, is almost traditional, I think. Yeah. Um, but um, we've decided, we, we also, we were experimenting in a, in a beta phase with different models, and we have decided to, to go with this for now. But yeah, absolutely. But again,
1: with subjects of, of money, Sometimes, when you're reinventing the product that people are using, keeping the the charging models the same stops them from being pulled too far into into water they don't understand. Like, people are very familiar with paying an assets under management fee. So, it used to be 2 and 20. I mean, with the hedge funds, it's Two percent, so zero point seven five percent is a, a significant reduction on what some of them charge.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right. You know, it, it depends on how far you want to push the the boundaries. You know, of what you're what you're what you're recreating. Yeah,
1: because because it's interesting as we grow older and grow up and potentially have children who are familiar with us having our money managed that way. I mean, because that's that's where I seek my kind of inspiration is. I look at what my my dad's done with our sort of family wealth and how he's managed it, and that's something of an example to me. And I can imagine if people start to see grown-ups or people they sort of seek counsel from using that then it'll change again in terms of how far you can push those boundaries which is quite exciting
2: absolutely and i think also the the most important bit and which is why no matter how often i say that you know there's more you can do with this robo advice model and that you can improve on it or i mean there must be a first wave for a second wave to exist right so it's and it's and that's what i want to stress here is that it is really important that these propositions exist because they have opened up the market one for digital money management but they have significantly opened up the market for this but they also they've massively increased the transparency so um, the expectation Mm. now is that you are being made aware of the charges that are happening in, in, in the product you're engaged with and that is because of uh, yeah all these first wave robots who have been super transparent about their prices right you go on the website you see what you're paying and there's not much more than that and it means the same for us and I think that will that in itself, as a product feature, is something that is inc- extremely powerful, um, because it forces other players to also be more transparent about what they do. And you you can't get away with a you know a two two and twenty model you, unless you're you are a, a hedge fund manager or a private wealth in private banking where people are happy to pay that. You you, you can't get away with that much longer in the retail space.
0: Is there is there still a a, a trust issue to to be overcome?
2: Yes. So especially. Since the investment management in, in a proposition like ours happens fully autonomous, there's no y- human involvement in the individual yet trading decision-making. We do have systems in place that look at outliers. Um, if the machine spots um, a, a, a transaction that is wildly different from a pattern that, that could be expected or it's flagged and then, then it can be investigated, but it's not the norm. Mm. Uh, the human shouldn't be involved and that has implications of course and you mentioned a black box earlier we're talk about the
1: flash crash don't they and it just algorithms are setting off other algorithms that are causing it to shift the market hugely which is the the irrational fear
2: yes so then there's exactly there's a lot of concerns around you know the 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 autonomy the autonomous machine going rogue and And so you need to, in in, in as much there, we're doing some educating, of course, of explaining um, the mechanisms, of how it works, the safeguards that we have in place, but also the limits of what the machine actually does. And I think that's really important. Because obviously there is, yeah, there is uh, the general concerns we have around AI and, and, and the robots taking over, and then more specifically, okay, what what does it mean for my money? Like, can it all disappear in in, in a day or in a flash crash or something? Would,
1: would it be common practice to then stress test your model against scenarios that behave like um, the collapse of Lehman Brothers or anything like that? Like, would you do do you back test it in that fashion?
2: So, the, since we don't, um, well, that's the important bit. Since we have not invented this technology. We've we've taken it out of uh, yeah this institutional and private banking context and brought it to the consumer. But this technology has been running and has been active and managing money for you could say almost three decades. Um, in th- in the context of what our yeah technology partner and strategic partner ETS has been doing. Um. It's a very tried and tested proposition um, that has gone through you know, all the the, all the waves of, of the different crises that we have gone through over the last year, for, for almost 30 years.
1: Well, it's a proven model as well, isn't it? Because there was Jim Simmons of Renaissance Capital, who famously didn't hire any economists. He hired PhDs in mathematics, astrophysics, and stuff like that. And they performed extraordinarily well for a very long time. So it shows that very bright people and good algorithms can and will outperform people who aren't. and that, that's just the way it is,
2: really. Of course, the disclaimer is always, you know, past performance, you no, know, any kind of future perf- that's important, you know. You don't necessarily can always infer that uh, things will go the same way they've gone in the past. But the same is exactly, like I said, the same is a bit true for one ETS, but also for us. At ETS, they are around, well, I think it's 80, 80 to 90 people. And there's mathematicians statisticians physics phds but not not that many finance people working there it's an extremely data and science driven approach to to the, the the product they're building and the same is true for us we are 35 people now and we are there's three of us who have a financial services background the rest is technology people or commercial people of course we are in the essence um yeah it's technology that drives this change it's not so much A change of the financial models or Mm. or, uh, It's more the it's more the how than the what you do actually that's changing But it's but it's the same is true for other industries, right? It didn't take an Extremely advanced taxi company to create uber But it takes a tech guy who brings technology to a sector that hasn't seen a lot of disruption in the past Right that that's that's how change works and and the same is true for finance as well
0: And for a bit more background on ECS because I don't know how many people would have heard of them But they are they're a big company They've been around for, well, they, as you said, 30 years.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. they are, um, I think they've been totally have 15, 15 billion uh, under management or under device um, at different uh, d- different institutions and, and um, institutional clients. Yeah, it's not a, the core of the technology is not new. And that's important because like you said, you know, you, the, the, you have in investor management, the, the outlier situations like the Lehman crash or the dot com bubble. Um, and only over time you see which proposition actually survives these these waves. And you need a lot of data to be able to um, create models that can withstand the test of time uh, over uh, periods where you also have pronounced downturns. And that's why I'm not saying, uh, obviously, that there's a possibility of, of creating technology like this that has uh, its own proprietary models, but um, to to rely on something that has been active for quite a while is is an important bit of of, of Mm. this product. But
1: but presumably the access to retail customers gives you access to more varied data points to collect more data to refine, hone, and improve the model further, actually. And then does that lend itself to a sort of winner-takes-all model in your market whereby the person who captures the most data to refine the model the quickest will build a better model and subsequently attract more
2: investors. Yeah, I mean, so there's, I think there's two things there. The one is the, of course, um, if the investment proposition is superior, the returns show it, and that's attractive for consumers. But clearly, it's also not enough. In In this space, in the investment management space, you have to do more, and it comes back to what we've discussed earlier, where um, we talked about how do you get people actually, one, aware of your product, and how do you acquire them as customers? But also, how do you lead them into the proposition, and isn't that the actual product? So, while the the, the core engine is a clear differentiator and is important um, mm. to, to create positive outcomes you need you need more than that you need to also solve the well the client experience and the journey into how do you get to actually trusting this, this engine to manage your money So I'm while while I love I'd love, love to say that that's all that matters um it, it, it takes more than that yeah to, to make it work.
1: Because it gets more complicated the more assets under management you have. I mean, I, I only think this from a personal wealth point of view is I think if I made a million pounds, presumably fishing around for 8 to 10% would, would be doable. If you talk about somebody trying to allocate 5 to $10 billion, then the opportunities are simply not as, as, there's not as many opportunities because you're having to move big portions of money around that don't go unnoticed, right? In public markets, if you, so, yeah. so how does that get more complicated the more retail capital you take on? Or is it just because it's so individual that you don't have exposure to,
2: um, the, the simpler amount of assets you have under management. So uh, there's, of course, the the asset universe that we invest in with exo Investing specifically is um, its ETFs, and it's uh, yeah. an investment universe of around five to six hundred ETFs or so that end up in the. There's also a the daily evaluation of this investment universe and on a daily basis. Five to six hundred end up in, in being possible. Yeah, investment assets and the uh, well the the point in time where we would uh, influence the market th- that'd be it'd be great if, if if we would get to that point but it, it's just unlikely obviously because there's much bigger institutional players who um who who manage pools that uh, actually can make a, can make a market move it also of course uh, you want to make sure that you invest in very very liquid asset classes that are not exposed to a volatility of one single player which is a part of the evaluation process that we do and in what assets are considered to be a part of the portfolio. So the, the the threat of that happening is uh, is very far away um, for us or for any retail proposition, at least, just because of the institutional pots being so much bigger.
1: We saw quite an interesting thing um, came through our, our network recently. There was a, a mobile application from the UK trying to give access to the burgeoning middle class in China to trade stocks outside of China and investment products, which the the reason being why I'm bringing that up is that is a huge body of, of potential retail investors with you know considerable amount of wealth to move around, which could and will presumably start changing the market depending on what their appetite is. And I think this particular platform, its only goal was to get them trading, mm-hmm. not necessarily prudently trading just to simply get them trading in the market. But it's quite interesting to see what will happen when the middle classes and other countries develop and they want to come into the sort of global conversation of which markets they look for, whether it be local or the sort of standard global ones, and and what that will end up doing. uh, Do you have any view on sort of how these, you know, would you bring in international investors to use your platform as well to get access to UK markets? and products or are you just specifically UK investors at the moment UK retail investors
2: so with our own retail products we will we will stick to the UK probably as a testing ground for for for, for a while just because of what we we have well, the operational uh, basis covered here we have the commercial basis covered here so it, it's just uh, an easier testing ground an easier sandbox for us on the technology space and the b2b space of course there which is why this is a more interesting let's say also commercially more interesting project long term because you can tomorrow sell this technology in china or in japan without having to to be there because an api connection or an api documentation you can send to someone who is there and they can start using your product without you having to one go to market there have doing marketing there and caring about the the specifics of of the local market there so in in a b2b sense we think a lot about international markets and and who could interested uh, in this and we also, which we're, we're in a very lucky situation where we get yeah, incoming interest, inbound interest into this proposition from really all areas of the world, so there's, we've, we've had conversations with people in uh, parties in China, in, uh, in Asia, in, in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe as well, in Continental Europe of course. In America as well, so the the possibilities are, are are endless there almost. But for yeah, for retail clients, just of how complicated it is, you know, to, to be active in a in another regulated environment with the local uh, pe- peculiarities, um, it was something we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily do right now.
0: How, how much of a boon is it being backed by the Rothschild family, and ha- and how did that come about?
2: So yeah, that's a uh, it, it's a uh, of course it's part of the this process I described earlier. Where we said we went to look for the funding before we um, started. Building because we knew we wanted uh, powerful partners in this one from the technology side, but also from a strategic side. Of course, the having the this it's the Swiss uh, the Swiss uh, Rothschild family, Ariane the Rothschild, Benjamin the Rothschild, having them involved in this project is I- extremely powerful for us. Well. It's really in, mm-hmm. important for us. One because of. Uh, um, the Rothschild name has quite some has quite some gravitas, of course, and it gives you a, a certain credibility bonus, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, uh, not deniable for us. But also, we just can uh, can access a part of the organic network through them, um, which is why we are actually uh, in the B two B space already active in Switzerland, yeah, we'll, like we're here in the UK, and we're implementing uh, projects and, and working with parties there. And, and these have come about as a, as an outcome of this relationship. But really, the most important bit is that all of our investing parties see these as very strategic investments into uh, yeah, a sort of fit into what they do. And that's an extremely important position for us to be in, because it's not we don't have VC money breathing down our necks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we don't have to focus on the short term result and can really emphasize, OK, we're building something here that will yield results, maybe n- not next week and not next month, and not next quarter but uh, there's definitely something uh, that's, that's coming up, and that's that's extremely helpful for, for any startup, and we're in a, in a very privileged position there, and it's, we're, we're very grateful for that as well. Mm. But it, it could be a new way of, of startups
1: approaching investment. Like, I know that these big family trusts and family offices sort of hide in the shadows, but as you say, they provide a more forgiving roadmap to nascent companies than having VCs not sharing that short-term viewpoint or needing that venture growth, which you know, we constantly see venture growth undermine the stability of the company if it stretches too far um, so being able to build something in your own time is, is fantastic and with the names and credibility that these organizations bring is exceptionally helpful because I do I do sympathize with the financial services startup space in the UK because I think it's a big it constantly is a catch-22 of we need the money to execute mm-hmm. we need the credibility to build the product that we envision and it's young people come in and bring the technology and the old people have the the money and the access to the contacts and the wealth. Yeah. It's
2: complicated. But did you, did you have to go through much of a process to convince them? Oh, no, uh, of course, no. It, uh, to sell a concept and to sell an idea and sell a, a, a roadmap um, is, is never easy, though. So, no, it, it's not easy because, of course, they're extremely smart individuals and they make very smart decisions. This is why they've been around for so long and uh, and have the standing they have. But I also want to say something to the other point you raised. Um, I think there's, there's two sides to the argument that could be made. On the other hand, of course, um, working with a VC, while it puts a lot more pressure on you, it also means that you, you can access the network that they p- potentially have, mm-hmm. which is why I don't want to rule out that that ever becomes a possibility. Imagine um, us yeah, going to, to, an a, to an Asian market or going to the, to the, uh, to the US, for example, where you wouldn't want to do that on your own, but you need a powerful party to to well establish a base with there, and then it's extremely uh, helpful to have a, a VC to tap into their network you know, of, of of companies that they work with, um, or just the network in general that they have. And so there's there's clearly downsides and upsides to well, both. It's a models. reputation
1: builder as well. I mean, absolutely. Some, some, yeah. we had a, a guy called Kenny Ewan from WeFarm who got investment from True Ventures and. Having the true fan- venture stamp of approval legitimizes your business in in any number of other senses as well. So totally. Yeah, they are they are uh, of course an important vehicle. It's just um, bringing more family offices into the discussion. Just again, it's like the corporate VCs as well. It allows the diversification of of capital, which is quite exciting.
2: No, uh, absolutely. I think you know the more the more diverse the space is, uh, and the more possibilities you have to start something and, and build a proposition. The better. Absolutely.
0: How has the experience been for you as a as a First-time founder, I think. I think I'm right in saying.
2: Yes. S- yeah. So st- steep learning curve. <laughs> very steep learning curve. <laughs> yes. Especially the experience of of being able to build this with a with a friend is quite special. Um, Leonard and me are, are are pretty close friends and have been since high school. And still, uh, still, presumably, still <laughs> very close friends. Exactly. Um, I was the the best man at his at his wedding, so okay. that, that has worked out well and it's that's quite a special relationship of course you have and it's, uh, it, it brings some interesting dynamics because for example we almost no filter between us of course so because we're very close we're very open with each other mm-hmm. which is why sometimes actually um, colleagues have pointed out that we that we fight a lot but i think it's just it's just very different from what you know normally in an office environment that some people are very frank with each other which we can be there's uh, w- w- there's no holding back when we discuss something and uh, that's I th- and that can be yeah, you know, there's, I think there's upsides and downsides to everything and the big upside to that is that we have l- very little information loss obviously because yeah. how we separate the tasks is Leonard runs the office in Madrid in Spain and oversees the product and tech and, and dev devel- development of course and the strategic decision making and I'm, I'm here in the UK with the operational uh, uh, operational functions and, and, and marketing and finance etc. And so to, to make that work, to make two offices work in two different countries at the stage we're at, not being a thousand people company, I think that it's very important that you are extremely closely aligned and that, that's where yeah, being close friends comes really into play and helps. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, uh, no... And and we we still we 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 talk every day we 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 speak for for an hour or two every day you know just to, sp- to keep the to keep the information exchange going and I think that if you have if you don't have a strong basis
0: like that then it's probably it's a bit more difficult mm-hmm. to make that work. And what about hiring new bloods into that in the early stages? How was that? Because obviously, for anyone, for employee number three, number four coming into that very tight relationship, would might be difficult, but also. No, i i i get it, your
2: point you know like, how oh, it could be difficult for someone to come into something that's yeah so close well, you create and, you yeah. create a family when it's only five absolutely of
1: you. especially if for madrid and there's one of you still
2: in the uk you want support it's it's complicated uh, absolutely and b- which is why one of the major learnings f- or for me i think not for both of us definitely but especially for me is that we i think we hired a lot or try to hire a lot on culture alone because mm. we, we really wanted someone who was a a cultural fit to what we are and how how we are with each other and while there's a benefit to that but it's also a bit dangerous because you overlook skill and capabilities and while someone might not just like think the way you do um that they might be extremely capable of doing their job well obviously mm. and that's very important it's something that you tend to overlook a bit in the, in the beginning i think you need a robo advisor for it <laughs> exactly. There's you know, still opportunity there. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's that's uh, one of the things you have to look out for, I think. Or we, we realized that we needed to look out for it. I think we've, we've gotten right in the process, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you still make time for the friendship?
2: Actually, yes. Yeah, so that's a, a very important bit is that we, whenever we meet and so Leonard comes over every every other week, I go to Madrid quite regularly as well. So we have the exchange with the team. I mean, we do that for more people in the team. People go back and forth between the offices. But whenever we spend time at each other's places, then we make sure that we also we go out and have a, a dinner or a drinks, or we go and uh, hit some some balls on the driving range. I don't know, and, and don't talk about work. Mm. We make it a point to not to not talk about work actually, and uh, um, yeah, because y- it, it tends to creep in a lot, you know. We d- because it's a it's a, the one the most important thing, uh, one of the most important things. Not because Leonard has a family, has a wife and two kids. I don't, so I think mm. he ha- these things are very important to him as well but um yeah it d d d you need to make sure to not lose that.
0: How many exO jokes are in your best man's speech? <laughs> <laughs> we see
2: that's uh that's an area where you need to k- separate you yeah know? there's a separation sure. of of yeah. of, uh, <laughs> of job and uh, and personal life. um I think it's getting more important than that I think
1: for a while we've allowed this leakage um of the sixty to eighty hour week to sort of become blended with our our lives, and the more definitive you are in cutting that apart, I mean.
0: Um, the iPhone or the whatever phone doesn't know the difference. No, it will send you of your per- course, of yeah. and your work email your Everything is
1: urgent. Ray Dalio does a good job in his book Principles of talking about the culture of radical honesty, so that you mm-hmm. don't get people fearing mistakes and and reporting them too late. And it sounds like if you're leading by example in your company, that is fantastic. And I guess it's also important that you give. Employees a chance to, to speak out speak openly and then also to get away from work leave work and come back with fresh ideas and Because startup and cultures are very intense and especially doing what you're trying to do It's, it's there's a lot of yardage to cover And
2: so you, you do want to get make sure people don't burn out and keep supporting them to support you Yeah, I think th- that's probably where the friendship helps actually because we th- because this is a while it's a business It's also a, a almost a project of the two of us in, in a way and um, so this is what the, the boundaries are clearly blurred there for us, but it also means that while the private life is a bit affected by work, work is also, or private life also creeps into work, obviously, and that's a, it's a positive thing. We're not only in the office uh, treating each other. As colleagues, but uh, you know, everybody tries to make, you know have an atmosphere where you you feel like you're more than that. Obviously, and not only a, a person who also does a job like you do, and I think because we have we have to between the two of us, I think everybody else mm. I would I would think you know and hope feels the same way a bit.
0: Presumably, that's going to get harder and harder as as you scale up. Yes,
2: absolutely. So already now we have the um, challenges of yeah opening up more offices, for example, in Switzerland. One of the approaches to yeah to keep the the culture, or the cultural aspects, or no, to keep an, to keep a, a close eye on the cultural aspects. We, for example, what we've done there now is it's a it's someone that we've worked with in Madrid uh, and in London for a while before before we sent them to. To Switzerland. So again, it's a, it's not we, we build a close relationship before we then, you know, entrust a, a new market to to someone. And he, this person has also been involved <laughs> with us before because it's it's a, you know, a, a very intricate and intimate part, you know, of, 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 of doing that well. they have got tr- the cultural seal of approval,
0: yes. so they can no, p- they, pass it down. Absolutely. But this yeah. is yes, yes,
1: this yes. is where you're you're as well to do reading books about empires and how they grow and topple when you're you're spread across so many different countries. And Switzerland definitely isn't like. Actually, my colleague is a Swiss Spanish and it's two very different countries. He happens to to be prone to both tendencies, but it's it's very culturally different, especially when you're hiring locally, which presumably you will be.
2: Yes, and you... I mean also it's not because we feel I think all of us you know we we travel a lot and we have friends who live in different places and then we also we t- I think we tend to assume that or sometimes there's this idea that we're, we're all the same and we're not you know obviously because or already you know while Madrid and the UK and our, our countries in Europe and we're only separated by, by one other country which is France in between hmm. we're culturally quite different right of course so you have to not pretend like that's not a thing and then find ways to work with it and make it work.
1: Well, this is the frustrating thing, I think, to some degree about the UK startup market is to expand to a bigger consumer base, we have to go through all the EU countries, which are very different. Whereas if you see a, com- a you know, company in the US, the states are, are do have their own independent idiosyncrasies and stuff, but it's much easier. They all speak the same language, all united under the same banner and, and they have a, a distinct advantage. When it comes to just venture funding them
0: for growth that we do having to go into europe and and figure out all the complexities yeah we had um we haven't actually published it yet but we had one of the founders of made.com on a couple of weeks ago and he said when they first launched into Italy, it completely bombed because um, the Italians weren't used to paying online. They wanted to pay for everything by cash. So they <laughs> had to pull out, and they're only now, two years later, relaunching into Italy. A tr-
2: tricky bit to you know, fix when yeah. you're an online uh, yeah, furniture exa- store, exactly. right? So
1: and they were really afraid of Germany as well because they said that they were worried about people returning a lot of stuff. They said, apparently, e commerce people, a lot of people buy stuff and then will return it.
2: Um, yeah if they're not happy friend of mine works for I don't know if you guys know blah blah car yes and, and the you know the right sharing app and she told me when they expanded so that there's this time window of when you say okay I, I'll leave at three and then I have a, a, a flexibility <laughs> of 10 minutes around that and when they launched into the Italian market they had to extend that by another 10 minutes you know <laughs> it's very stereotypical but then it's true yeah you know, um, because you need more flexibility there and to get these things right you know like you can really fall flat on your nose if you don't
0: yeah. Um, so what, what is the... You talked a bit about the B2B stuff, but what is the, the grand long-term vision?
2: In a nutshell, is we really we want to be the the engine that empowers organizations of all sizes and shapes and forms to build next generation financial products. Um, why are we doing everything ourselves? So creativity and innovation lives from different minds doing different things. And for us, we see our, uh, our our value add in being the engine that empowers other people to do great things. Because of course, our capabilities and creativity and uh, the, the space or, or ways to come up with new ideas are limited so it's important to be in, in the center of things and, and let everybody else do um, whatever they think they, they, they can do with this and that's that would be my goal that everybody when they think of okay I want to build Something that has to do with investing, they they think of, um, not exo, EXO, of course, but th- actually, which is something I haven't mentioned, we, we will be more visible with a different name in the future right. for this technology business.
0: Ah. So EXO is the, the retail product. Exactly. Like EXO is yeah.
2: the retail product. But when they think of building something, they think of, um, yeah, we're actually in the, in, the, in the process right now fixing the name, but I don't want to, you know, sure. uh, uh, reveal too much there. But yeah, um, that they think of that, that would be my goal and my ambition and our ambition is that. Because it was extraordinary when it was a Goldman
1: Sachs came out with, was it Marcus mm-hmm. was the name of their one percent yielding product. Was it retail
2: focused? Marcus, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a it's a retail product. Yeah, and, 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 and sorry,
1: just just as a segue, but what was their positioning behind that? Because it, it came out of nowhere, and they had this retail product that was backed by Goldman Sachs, and so everybody sort of thinks, well, it'll it'll stick around, and therefore it's trust they?
2: yeah I, see, I think they also they, they realized them um, one of the opportunities there right and goldman Sachs i think is is very interesting in itself just because of how different it is from a lot of other players the, the culture they have for technology is very different Tec- goldman Sachs, by now you could think of it as the technology company for a lot of different factors um more than a bank actually so i really? think they just saw the opportunity um to do something that one is a differentiation to a new market but i think also they see the aspect of learning more about about the uh, the, the consumer and and Expanding that into very, very different things. It w- it won't stop where it stops now with the uh, retail, the retail product markers that they have, which is I think it's named after the uh, the original founder of Goldman Sachs, which Marcus Goldman, or I really? think that's, that's where the name comes from. I think, but I'm, yeah, I might was, be wrong.
1: It was a bit out of left field for me, but um,
2: yeah, I wasn't sure
1: if you I'm gonna go with the same naming convention.
2: But that the, the the interesting thing is there, right? How you see new players come into markets where they weren't before, right? I mean, now we saw Apple launch their, their credit card, right? The, yeah. uh, again, together with Goldman Sachs. And um, the same, you know, will happen for uh, you know Amazon and Google, maybe, or Facebook, you know, going into spaces where they are not active before, in the, in, be it in finance, be it in investing, be in whatever it is, you know, and that's well, going to be very interesting. It's
1: almost a, a, a thing where they participate so much in your life, because your smartphone, if it's an Android phone, it's participating in a lot of your, your life and your activities, and so the more it can into the more it's sort of your life brought to you by Google Android your Google home how you integrate with all these things so uh, that's why I find it so interesting about your b2b product because it is kind of the the discussion really that these brands are having much more to do with you than the old transactions
2: of of the past yes Um, um, absolutely so the what what apple uh, as a company has right is, the, is the, that you interact with one of their products uh, on, a, on a daily basis hundreds of times sometimes right that's extremely powerful to have an entry point like this and what you can what you can do with that and then money is just the same we interact with money hundreds of times sometimes in a day so it's not uh, very surprising that these two things would converge at some point and also here we are in europe we're very very different from what you see in Asia, for example, where here financial innovation or innovation in, in finance in fintech happens through one startups and then in cooperation with established players, mm. whereas in China, for, especially in China, you have actually tech companies, Tencent, Alibaba move into the financial space, but they come out of completely different ecosystems, right? They come from the, either the device space or they come from the ecosystem space like WeChat. So there's a, it's a very different play. I think to, to see, you know, where th- these two different models and ways of going about innovation, that's also gonna be b- very exciting going forward.
1: Yeah, because was a big debate, uh, again, I read in one of these books, it was talking about the most efficient way to sort of grow an economy is like, is capitalism right? And then somebody was making the point for state-run capitalism, which is the Chinese model, which is that there is a lot of intervention from the state, but there is, market capital to some degree being superior, of course that hasn't played out yet, so it's all completely based on conjecture, but models like WeChat being able to enter into that space uh, is is very interesting. Do you have any view, particularly at the moment, because we're seeing a a fair bit of it on sort of blockchain and cryptocurrencies, do you have any take or excitement? Are they something that your platform would ever trade? uh,
2: Crypto, yeah, well, well, clearly. The thing, the the idea is to... Offer the possibility for someone to build a proposition with that. We wouldn't, within EXO, for example, or with any of the other retail propositions we have, we would not potentially, um, I'm saying that right now, but in the foreseeable future, there Mm. wouldn't be crypto. The important bit for us would be to also offer the capability uh, within our engine to have crypto as a part of your asset universe. And we're absolutely, uh, that's absolutely something that we consider. And I I don't have a view on the 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 long the, the long term uh, or not I have a long term view on where you know Bitcoin and Ether and where everything is going but uh, I think also there we've gone through some some cycle of a hype and uh, mm-hmm. we've gone through a lot of lot of people had some hefty uh, you know reality checks obviously at some point <laughs> over the last two years and uh but we, we will i'm also fairly convinced uh, that we will see much more hard value applications of this in when it's going to happen i don't know it's a field that i i yet have we yet have to see like b- a broad market a value proposition that actually is out there and it's not there yet but w- there will be some things um and then we don't you know, want to exclude that being a part of it of the platform
0: do the quick fire. yes absolutely. yeah okay um so uh, can we have it from you a prediction for the future
2: i think what I always what I hear a lot of is fear of automation and AI and the robots and it's not gonna be that bad that's my major (laughs) prediction for the future things are gonna be fine we've been fine with technological process uh, and progress in the past and
0: we'll be fine with this one as well so you don't buy into these these viewpoints that um, you know you can set a machine a task and then it will do anything. Fulfils that role in the optimal way even if that's at the expense of you know might have to kill all of humanity to do it best Did um, uh,
2: the, the paperclip example exactly, yeah, is yeah. one of those right and I'm, I'm familiar with those and I, I totally I'm totally aware of these scenarios being thing um But I still I still think um, on, on a broad scale uh, and I th- another thing actually that the fear of the average person is, is that you know, it's so specifically related to how AI could actually achieve its goal and Thereby be a threat to us, but it's much more abstract in the form of, you know, the Terminator, and and, mm. and then and and, ag- and then again also more specific in the form of work pl- uh, workplace replacement, right, okay, you know, yeah. of of job loss. B- but especially there, I think the fears are, are overblown. We've gone through uh, big stages of change, right? The industrial revolution, the ag- well, the agrarian revolution before the industrial revolution, after that, and now the 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 service economy, the digital economy revolution, and um, we're still here, right? There's uh, there's no, we don't see millions uh, of unemployed farm workers on the streets, right? And that's because we found new ways to apply our, our skills. And we'll do the same this time. Um, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think if we are aware, the, 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 I guess the logic being that the good thing for entrepreneurship and innovation is actually it expands the economy to to make more opportunity and grows the pie Um, as opposed to traditional methods which continue to sort of whittle it down and is there enough to sort of share, it? especially, you know, a lot of our our growth models are based on selling more things to more people because the population continues to grow. Well, clearly, we're going to have to revisit that in the future. Hopefully by 2050, we will have something of tapered off the the world population growth. Otherwise, it's going to be problematic. Do you have any takes on the future of, of how the economics might work when we no longer are able to sell more things to more people?
2: I think, well just specifically, of course, there's a big you know, change in ho- how you position your, your proposition for um, changing demographics. Clearly that's that's the case. But then I think the, the limits or the concerns stem a lot from the limit of the human imagination. right? We, we just, mm. like we didn't know what we would be doing um, after the machines took over our jobs in the fields. Um, and we didn't know what we would be doing after the machines took over in the factories. N- th- we always found new things to produce, to to make, uh, to create, and I think it will be the same this time. and We will find new ways to apply ourselves and come up with a lot of great new things. Mm. So I'm I'm very hopeful. You filled me with great optimism. <laughs> That's and the plan. And what about a startup book or resource? A resource, I like, super basic, I like post-its. I like okay. them a lot. I, I see a lot of productivity tools. Gantt chart and and management and project management tools and whatever it is and I really like post-its and the digital equivalent of that is Trello and I love it because Mm -hmm. it's so simple and the best tool, like the best, there's this saying right, but the best camera is the one you have with you and the best tool is the one you want to use so don't make it complicated for yourself, stick to something basic like uh, post it on a wall or Trello on your computer, and that's you'll be fine.
0: Interesting. Um, and what about the best advice you've ever given or you've received? I've received. I I, d- I wouldn't know which <laughs> is the best I've given. Yeah. And I a th- lot, lot of people say that. Yeah, it's too a humble.
2: Uh, yeah, no. I d- but but the advice I received, and it's I think it's quite common knowledge. But surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. If you're in, no matter what you do, uh, you're d- if you're the smartest person there, you d- you your 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 capa- your capacity to be to be able to learn is limited, and that's really dangerous, obviously. So I've gone, and how I got to this was I've worked in, in policy in, in the EU, I've worked in development, I worked in the German car industry, I worked in, in, in very different fields. And always, when I when I came to something new, I had to learn new things, because there were people who knew more about the field, just like when I came to this. Um, People knew more about finance and investment management than I did, and I think that's a really, really good thing. That you have to learn yeah. uh, and and be very humble about what you can do, and then figure things out along uh, along the way. And I think that's that's something positive, you know, to, to make mistakes in that way Definitely. and then learn from someone else. Pretty really good. Definitely.
1: Our last question is: If for anybody listening to the podcast, there's anything they can do to help you on your journey, uh, what would that be?
2: One of the things we have a lot of, and I explained before, like, the very different, many different ways in which this technology can be used. And, but there's the, again, the the limit to how many things we can come up with with our own creativity. So what, uh, what we always are very excited about is when people have great ideas in this space, and then we can show them actually how easy it could be to do that. A major part of our work is to teach the art of the possible, to kind of spark creativity in other organizations, to make them realize, uh, oh, we could actually do something that is with deals with investing or saving or um, well, money and finance in general. We just haven't thought about it because it seemed very distant and very um, difficult to do. And we love to hear about ideas, um, how, no matter how crazy they are. If you're working on an insurance product for uh, helicopter pilots and that should have an investment component, let's, let's talk about it. You know? mm-hmm. So come to us with your... Uh, crazy ideas. It's because we love them. And so and we uh, figure a way out to do something with them. Like mm-hmm. any
1: of those people who who hack away on Quantopian, building their financial trading models and stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Nikolai, thank you so much for coming on. You've, you've given us a real education.
0: Excellent. Thank you guys. This was fun. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup mic mic or get us an email audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations.
1: Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory back to Entel. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out Entel.co, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.